Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Iowa Week, and all week long we've been focusing on our K-12 public schools. Today, the question is, who's running the show? Many teachers and school staff members have quit or retired across the country since the beginning of the pandemic. And a recent survey from the National Education Association tells us that 55 percent of teachers are thinking about leaving the profession earlier than planned. This exodus of teachers and staff members isn't just about the pandemic, although it's certainly made things a lot worse. Low pay, poor benefits, crowded classrooms, lack of resources due to declining funding, concerns about safety, the challenges of managing student behavior, politically motivated harassment. These are just some of the reasons teachers have cited for leaving the classroom. And of course, again, the added pressures of the pandemic have made everything more challenging. This hour, I'll talk with Mike Baronic of the Iowa State Education Association, school superintendent Barb Schwaman, and John Joshua Brown of the Des Moines Education Association. And if you're someone who has left public education in recent years, send us an email. Tell your story. Talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org. And my first guest today is a teacher who left public education before the pandemic, but she hasn't given up on teaching. She's now the director of and lead educator of the Good Earth Nature School, a small private school in northern Johnson County. She worked in public education for 13 years as a special ed teacher and a behavioral strategist. She left in 2017, and Bridie Criswell is with me now. Hello, Bridie. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And what made you want to become a teacher? Well, um, when I was in my undergraduate program at Iowa, I uh, majored in psychology. Um, I've always always loved working with kids. Um, during that undergrad, I worked at um, Handicare in Coralville, and I loved working with the children so much. I decided to continue my education in, in graduate school um, for education, um, specifically special education. And at that time, um, the program that I chose was really focused on behavior and learning disabilities. So that was my passion. Um, also, um, working with students on the autism spectrum um, or students who had a dual diagnosis or were twice exceptional um, was really what I loved to do. So I started by working as a para um, during grad school and worked with some phenomenal special ed teachers that just inspired me. Um, still to this day, uh, are mentors to me. And I was hooked and I wanted to learn more and do more and um, work with kids who uh, may be a little marginalized um, in the school system or are struggling in one way or another. So when did your frustrations begin? Well, I think they began in earnest um, later in my career when I I left the classroom and I, I worked as a, a behavior analyst um, and then I switched back to the classroom um, and, and I, I attempted to develop what I wanted to be a model classroom for kids with mental health 
challenges and behavior challenges and some of the the most tricky and most intense behaviors um, at the elementary level, at least, in the district. And um, I wrote up a proposal um, for that classroom that involved uh, wraparound services. It involved uh, staff that were specially trained in reading and mathematics. Um, and I even outlo- outlined the bare minimum of time that those people would need to be staffed into that program. Um, a family resource person, time, um, after school programming, like everything was was in this package. And I said, if we, I presented that to the administration and said, if we want to really help these kids and families, it needs to look different because what we're doing now isn't working. Um, kids are getting hurt. Staff are getting hurt. Um, the kids aren't getting any better. Uh, they were still using quite a bit of seclusion and restraint um, because the physically would become very unsafe, uh, sometimes very quickly. So um, that proposal was was put to the powers that be, um, the upper level administration, and I was called in and said that it was approved. However, when I started that position, none of the supports that were outlined in the proposal were were given to that program. It was basically myself and uh, a paraprofessional, um, which we didn't even have until several weeks in. So it was really set up for failure from the start and not at all what I intended. And so that began a very quick, a quick downfall um, for me professionally and for the program and for the children and for everyone involved. And so that was a really really the catalyst that um, that forced that decision for me, um, that I needed to quit or die trying. And so I chose to leave at that point. We have heard a lot about the challenges that students are facing. Uh, again, the pandemic has has heightened things, but it's also shed light mm-hmm. on a lot of things that have been going on for a long time. The mental health challenges of students, behavioral challenges of students in the classroom. Can you tell me a, a little bit about the kinds of behavioral challenges you were dealing with? This is not to disparage the children that you were working with at all. These are children dealing with big challenges. But give, help us understand what it was like to be in the classroom. Well, um, I'll start out by saying that many, if not all, of the students that were in that program had quite a bit of trauma um, from a very young age. And so whether it was physical abuse, um, any kind of emotional abuse, sexual abuse, um, they were also primarily coming from homes um, where there was a history of incarceration, uh, low income, um, I had some families, you know, one that I remember so fondly um, that uh, mom had just gotten custody back of her children and had worked so hard to find them and get them back and was working, you know, multiple jobs and going to school and trying to make a better life for her children. Um, but the housing that she could afford was in, in a neighborhood in which there was a lot of violence and, and the kids were involved in gang activity and things. And and basically what the kids would tell me and what she would say is, I keep my kids inside because if they go out, they're either encouraged to become part of that violent group that are doing things that they shouldn't be, or if they refuse to do that, they're going to get hurt. 
So um, there was that dynamic as well. Um, but so difficult to keep keep that together as a mom who's working all the time and taking care of a, a sick loved one and, you know, all of these things. So there are many challenges all around um, for them. And the behaviors themselves were not necessarily a direct result of that. But um, when you come from trauma, it's very difficult to learn. Sometimes those learning disabilities were organic, you know, perhaps, and other times they missed so much instruction because of behavior and because of absence or um, any number of things. Um, there were times when kids would just come in the door and they were already in a, in a rage, really, because of what had happened on the bus or at home before the bus or whatever it might be the night before. Um, and those behaviors were really intense at times, and there were injuries, and it was very traumatic for everybody involved. And you didn't feel like you had enough support to, to deal with no, these behaviors? No, not at all. Um, I had the training. I had the experience. I had the research. I had all of – but I you can't do that as one person um, because, like I had said initially before we had even launched that program – that was not what it was supposed to be. Um, right. So I felt like it was a bit of a, you know, bait and switch, right. so to speak. Um, yeah. So there's there's so much to talk about here. But, I mean, do you feel like it was good intentions but a lack of funding? Do you feel like it was a disconnect between uh, really the administration and what was going on in the classroom? See, both of the above. What? All of the above. Yeah. Yes, I think both of those were factors. However, I feel if if funding was an issue, that should have been addressed up front instead of giving the stamp of approval and then saying, oh, yes, but by the way, we're not going to hire any of these right. additional supports for this program. And that's what they needed. Um, they didn't need to be in a room by themselves, you know, shut away from the rest of the population. That wasn't the point. The point was complete um, complete wraparound care, a full full program that involved um, addressing the learning disabilities that involved addressing um, and supporting the families at home and, and all of that together. Um, we might have had a chance, I think, but um, there were quite a few situations where I was physically all by myself um, and no one is answering the call for help. And not only was I in danger, but the children were as well. So safety was compromised quite often. Um, and when I would go and appeal for help, um, uh, it it wasn't there. It just wasn't there um, because there were so many other things going on at the same time. Um, so, yeah, it, it towards the end, too, before I left, um, there was one day where I just completely broke down. I just, I couldn't, I, I, I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't fix this and I couldn't do it by myself. So you were in an impossible position. An impossible situation. I was working practically 24 hours a day. There were nights where I was all night and I would show back up before the sun even came up in the morning thinking if I just work hard enough, I can make this happen. This is everything. You know, I've invested so much of myself and my career into this and I have to save it. I have to save it. Um, and I went to talk to the administration and one of them looked at me and said, well, perhaps you need a mental health plan. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I said, I don't need a mental health plan. I need support. These children need support. Um, so. And Bridie, we only have mm -hmm. about 30 seconds left, but I hear you saying that you felt like you were failing your students, mm -hmm. but you were also mm -hmm. 
just at your, the end of your rope mentally and Mm -hmm. physically, it must have hurt so much to quit. It was very, very, very hard. It was very hard. That was everything. Um, It was so important to me. I had put everything into that. Um, My training, my schooling, my board certifications, everything. I wanted to be the best that I could be for the kids, not for myself. But I really wanted to make that difference for them. No man is an island, right? No woman is an island. So I I just, I couldn't do it by myself. Bridie Criswell, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Charity. I appreciate you. I'm Charity Nebbe. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to the conversation in a moment. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. I'm Charity Nebbe, and you're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. This is Iowa Week, and all week long we've been focusing on Iowa's K-12 public schools. Today, we're focusing on one of the biggest crises in public education right now, staff shortages, a problem that has been made far, far worse by the pandemic. But many school employees will be quick to point out that a lot of the challenges that are causing people to leave education existed before the pandemic. If you're an educator who has had this experience, you can send us an email. Tell us your story. Talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org, or you can give us a call at 866-780-9100. With me now is Mike Baronic, president of the Iowa State Education Association. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Miss Nebby. Thank you for having me be part of the Education Week on Talk of Iowa. I Absolutely. It. Well, thank you so much for coming back to the show. And Mike, I keep seeing announcements about career fairs being held in school districts all over the state, hiring teachers and every possible staff position. Help me understand uh, how serious is this right now in Iowa, this staff shortage? Well, Charity, it's very serious. I uh, was on a meeting this past week with uh, about 150 people, and I did a quick survey, and 70% of the individuals who were on that Zoom with me stated that they are short personnel, not only support personnel, but also classroom teachers and paraprofessionals. Uh, It is all across the state. It isn't just the individuals who are working in our food and nutrition programs or driving our buses. It is actually affecting every part of the system. And I do want to make sure that people understand. I mean, we've talked about this all week, but in case this is the only show that you're listening to, really incredible work is being done in Iowa's public schools. So this is not meant to disrespect teachers, staff members, administrators who are there right now, who are doing this work. But this kind of shortage has to affect the quality of education. Absolutely. Um, It affects all of us uh, through society. I will reiterate what you just said, Charity. I've traveled all across the state, and I have seen some of the best educational practices that I've ever seen. And so Iowa is working hard to maintain the high quality of education that we so well deserve and are so proud to promote around the country. However, when our school districts continue to receive new funding that is below 
know what inflation is happening across the country. Uh, Schools are very hard-pressed to maintain salaries and benefits and the appropriate personnel to work with our students. Here in Iowa, we like to use public education as a recruitment tool to bring in new businesses and population growth. However, our elected officials have not appropriately provided the funding to maintain the high quality of education that we like to promote. And so uh, you are absolutely correct. Uh, there is continued high quality education. But as Bertie had just mentioned, there are stressors all across the system. Our administrators, our support personnel, our classroom teachers, everyone is working incredibly hard, but the demands that are being placed on them are very overwhelming. And as Bertie mentioned, folks are working 24 hours a day, working way into the night to try to get the work done. And so the stresses are becoming insurmountable. So we, of course, are are focusing on how this crisis has been brought to a head by the pandemic. Do you feel like this was happening before 2020? Oh, yes, ma'am. Of course, the crisis affected all of us in our own workplaces. But um, the situations that are occurring, as described by you in the opening introduction, and and Bertie as well, have been occurring for a number of years. Um, We see that individuals are not entering our teacher prep programs. We see that folks in their first year are leaving the schools. We have often believed that if educators stay past their fifth year, they'll stay in the profession for many years. That is becoming an increased number of people leaving. Uh, Folks who are seasoned professionals are leaving, as well as uh, folks taking early retirement. Um, Just this past uh, month, I was in a district on the western side of Iowa, and there were three teachers that quit in the first week of school because the supports weren't there for them. Um, I visited with superintendents and, and individuals, and we are short positions such as band and music. Uh, special education is at the top of the list. Uh, the demands that are being placed on our special education teachers and our AA personnel are overwhelming, and we just can't find the people that we need. I heard this week, Charity, that in some schools where they can't find substitute teachers, they are pulling their special education teachers to go cover classrooms. And those special education teachers are working with the most vulnerable in our schools. And so we have had a starting salary in this state of 33500 for seven years. And when an individual graduates from college, they can go out into the private sector and they can find employment that is a higher starting salary with a comparable four-year degree. Back in 2017, the state legislature made changes to Iowa's collective bargaining law, which really took away a lot of the leverage that teachers' unions have to um, negotiate those salaries, to negotiate those benefits. Is that part of this building crisis? Well, the unintended consequence that has occurred because of the legislature making this decision has created destination districts across the state. And that has hurt not only the suburban schools and the rules and and urbans, but um, there are districts across the state that put all of their language into a handbook. And folks who are graduating from college now have understood that it's important for them to look at contracts before they sign a contract. And uh, that has left some schools without the ability to hire the personnel that they need because uh, those folks are choosing to go to a district that may be closer, that maintain their uh, contractual rights. What the state did uh, with dismantling chapter, uh, the collective bargaining um, 
language was very detrimental to the entire system, and we need to explore how to revitalize that. Um, folks who live on our borders are moving into Nebraska, Minnesota, Illinois. And so, as I said earlier, Charity, uh, we like to use public education as a promotion for growth, but we have not supported it in the way that we should. Are we also seeing school districts that are cutting benefits as a cost-saving measure right now? Oh, absolutely. Um, with the insurance, cri- or insurance costs increasing with um, all of the basic fundamental uh, costs uh, that districts have to incur, like you and I do in our own home, uh, because of inflation, they are having to look at what is offered. And oftentimes, it's not comparable to the private industry. Um, I can tell you just this past summer, there was one district in southern Iowa that had a 0% increase in insurance. And an hour away, there was another district that had a 22% increase in insurance. And that district that had the large increase had to use all of their um, 2.5 new money to just cover those costs. And so they couldn't offer a a higher salary for the individuals working in their districts. And... um, We, as a state, some of our elected officials like to say they've invested uh, each year in our schools. Unfortunately, that investment that they're making is far below the needs of our schools and far below the cost of living. And when you compound that year after year for 10 years, it has a detrimental effect. Um, Just think about, Charity, when we were growing up, we could buy a soda for five cents. And if I multiply that by 10 cents, And today, I still couldn't go into a store and buy a a soda for 50 cents. Well, think about that. If we say that we've increased our funding by 2.5, but the inflation rate is much higher, that just continues to make the gap wider on what our schools can do to afford higher employees and to offer the benefits and salaries that make them competitive in our private sectors. Okay, so we've focused primarily on teachers so far, but of course we know that staff shortages uh, are across every position in Iowa schools, and those support staff positions are incredibly important for the educational experience, especially those paraeducators. Tell me what you see with these positions and why it's so hard to fill them. Well, there was a district on the eastern side of the state that had to cancel school the day after Labor Day because they didn't have enough bus drivers, and that's happening everywhere. They were trying to reach out to um, local districts to see if they could share bus drivers. If you drive along the streets, you can see buses with signs, we are hiring. Um, And if we can't get our kids to school, we can't educate them. Every part of the system is lacking uh, personnel. Um, You mentioned paraprofessionals. They provide one of the most vital roles that we have. If a child has an IEP where they have a one-on-one identified to work with them and we can't find the individuals to work with them, then that child's IEP is not being fulfilled appropriately. And I'm not placing blame on the administrators in our districts. I'm not placing blame on our school boards. It's an entire system problem where we cannot offer competitive salaries for folks in our support personnel positions. They can go to a convenience store down the road. They can go to a major box store, and they can earn a higher salary. And if we want to make sure that we are providing the services that we need to provide our students so we can move into the uh, future of our society here in the state, we have to support it with the finances necessary. 
I'm talking with Mike Baronic, president of the Iowa State Education Association. If you are an educator who has left public education, we'd love to hear your story. You can send us an email, talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. You can also give us a call at 866-780-9100. I have an email from a former teacher who taught both primary and secondary in both private and public schools who says the reason teachers are leaving in droves and schools are still hiring now is because teachers are disrespected and poorly paid. Somehow teachers got to be the whipping boys of the system. So there's one one person's experience in education. Mike, I'm sure that you have heard from a lot of frustrated teachers. Uh, I I do want to go back to something that you said earlier, where teachers and staff members are missing in some school districts, and that is putting these districts in a position where they have to cover in some way or another. Are you seeing districts cut programs? Oh, yes. Um, uh, I can't give you absolute specifics, but um, there are districts around the state who cannot find the individuals to um, cover or to teach a particular program area. And so everything from um, art and music, PE, to um, elective classes, uh, AP classes, are at a stress point in finding enough individuals. And so what that means, with a lack of funding in the state, we are actually having to explore cutting programming. Um, uh, I want to also mention something you just said. Uh, Yes, we have a certain population in our state and around the country that are working very hard to uh, demoralize those who are working in our schools and to diminish the role that we have as public educators. And one of our roles is to ensure that every child learns how to live in a democratic society. And when educators turn on the news and they see someone standing in front of a school board attacking the books that they're utilizing in their classes or that books should be pulled from a classroom library or from a library, or they're called into question that they're not transparent, um, those kind of things uh, weigh heavy on every part of our systems. Uh, our educators are transparent. Our schools are open, and individuals can go onto a website and look at the kind of curriculum that's being taught. But the narrative that's being utilized is working against the system. And when we want to pull public tax dollars and, and use vouchers as a tool to remove dollars from our public schools and put them into a private entity across the state, again, educators are beginning to understand what that means to the general funding. And so there are so many variables to this. And what we need to have is we need to have the majority of our individuals in our, in our communities stand up and support what is happening in our schools. I have interviewed teachers on this program, and I have also spoken privately to teachers who have been the targets of those attacks about books or about a pride flag in a classroom, situations like that. I've talked to teachers who've left. I was hoping to interview a teacher who's been through one of these experiences, but she felt too vulnerable to talk about it in any kind of public way because she was concerned about the safety of her own family. So those pressures are are very real for some teachers right now. Mike, we only have a couple of minutes left, and and I do want to talk about solutions. Last time you were on the show, we talked about how people who educate teachers can streamline the system and help get teachers in the classroom more quickly and, and things like that. But clearly, if there is this 
overwhelming morale problem for so many staff members in education, educating new teachers is not going to fix the problem. What do you think we can do? Well, I hate to keep coming back to this, but we need to financially support our schools in the appropriate manner. We need to show folks who are uh, in our high school classes that are considering career options that public education is a, a career which they want to in, uh, work on. But when they see that a starting salary is still at thirty-three-five, they have to think twice about if that's a career they want. We need to stop attacking our systems and stop attacking our educators because we all are watching that and it's making decisions decisions for people not to enter the field. We need to have conversations about what it is that we offer in our teacher prep programs and how um, maybe some of the things that we're working on aren't relevant, but we need to provide the supports there in our systems to help those folks who are entering our schools. Um, but I, Charity, I, I, it's a broken record for me. We have to financially support the systems that we have in place. We have a message from Dana who said that uh, she's a substitute teacher, worked as a sub for years and wanted to be a full-time sub, but there wasn't enough work, says people can't afford to be subs and that subs are treated like babysitters. So uh, another frustration with work in, in a public school experience. So we have just over a minute left, Mike. And, and one of the things we talked about on Monday's program is that people who have kids in the public schools and who are the people who know the most about what's going on in public schools tend to have about a 75 percent approval rating of what's going on in their public schools. So the people who know the most about the schools tend to approve at a much higher level than people who aren't involved in the public schools in any way. However, of course, the entire community, the entire state, we are all affected by the quality of public education in our state. How do you tell that story? How do you make people who don't have kids in school care? Um, we invite them to our schools. We ask them to um, work with us side-by-side, -side, volunteer basis. We talk at our school boards. We go to the Rotary. We go to the Chamber and have conversations with those people in the community. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. The high percentage of people in our state um, support what our schools are doing. And a majority of people do not support vouchers, but we continue to have that uh, conversation taking place. And so what I am asking is that the members of a community stand up and support what is happening for our schools because those folks know what that means to their community and to drown out the negative narratives that are coming from out of the state to attack our schools and demoralize our educators and diminish the quality work we do. Mike Baronic, thank you so much. Thank you very much. For, have a great day. Mike Baronic is president of the Iowa State Education Association. This hour, we're talking about one of the main crises in public schools today, and that is staff shortages, shortages of teachers, shortages of support staff. I'll talk with a superintendent who does double duty as the head of two school districts and the president of the Des Moines Education Association. All this week, we are revisiting Iowa Week 2022. School is in session. Find out more at IPR.org. Just click on Series and look for Iowa Week. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at PatrickFurryLaw.com. 
You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Iowa Week, and all week long we've been focusing on Iowa's K-12 public schools. Today, one of the biggest crises in public education right now, staff shortages, a problem that has been made far, far worse by the pandemic. But... Yes, it was a problem before, just not quite at this level. With me now is Barbara Schwaman, superintendent of Riceville Community School Districts and Osage Community Schools. That is right, superintendent of two districts. She's been a superintendent for eight years, six of those covering two districts. Hello, Barb. I think we've lost um, Barb on the phones. We'll get her back in just a moment. So uh, we'll talk to Barb in in just a moment. I'll talk first to Joshua Brown, president of the Des Moines Education Association. He was elected to the position in 2018 and before that taught middle schools um, social studies and special education. He intends to return to the classroom after his term ends. Hello, Josh. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, Josh, I would love for you to to give me a little bit of a perspective from the biggest school district in the state of Iowa, Des Moines Public Schools. You've been through a lot in uh, in recent years, and uh, I know that you've worked incredibly hard. Uh, the district has worked incredibly hard to attract teachers and and fill those positions. Tell me what things look like from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, the union and the district are committed to working together along with our community to address retention and recruitment and figuring out ways to solve the issues. Um, we are experiencing a lot of everything that has been said um, from Mike and and others that just saying what's going on across the state is happening in Des Moines. Um, and I think what's going on in Des Moines is happening in districts, large and small, um, what, Part of us, part of what we've done as a union is we addressed trying to work on dressing retention. We saw kind of the writing on the wall that we were struggling to fill positions and we were hearing of massive people talking about potentially leaving the profession. And so we engaged in having some educator well-being listening posts with our members across the district as well as virtually to try to listen to them about what it would take to get them to want to stay in the profession and what it would take to lift up their voices as educators to improve Des Moines public schools, that they would stay in Des Moines. What did you learn in those listening posts? First first about the the challenges that these teachers and staff members were facing. Yeah, I, I think the five major things that we got out of that listening post were that educators weren't having enough time to get the work done within the within a reasonable amount of time within their workday and a reasonable amount of time outside of the contract time to be able to finish all of the tasks that are being put on teachers as we continue to have less educators in our schools that just keeps compiling and more and more of their time is being taken away. Um, The attacks on public education and the attacks externally to not have to not feel supported by their community um, is another was another big issue. The lack of funding and not feeling like they are getting the salaries and the benefits that they think that they deserve um, based on their profession, based on the amount of work they're putting in, based on the education that they were required to get for their jobs. Um, needing to make sure that their voices were being heard and listened to in an authentic way, as well as the issue around safety and figuring out ways to um, help make sure that our schools feel safe and feel safe for our students and our staff 
um, as we continue to move forward. Well, and I just want to point out that safety is a multifaceted issue in our schools. I mean, mm-hmm. teachers are, of course, with the pandemic, they're concerned about health safety. That has been an issue for many teachers and staff members who are particularly vulnerable. But also, uh, we heard Bridie Criswell talk earlier about how in dealing with some of the most difficult behavioral issues in her career that she felt personally, physically at risk, so her personal safety, and I've heard many teachers talk about that, that violence within a school can threaten their personal safety. And then we're also, of course, witnessing uh, these mass shootings and attacks on schools, and that has to be on the mind of every teacher everywhere as well. Yes, I think that what when we're looking at the issue of safety, we're looking at all those different approaches and all the different facets, whether it's mental, physical, health, um, and trying to figure out ways to create a policy and create policies around those things to be able to have um, support our staff and our students and our families um, feel safe about being in schools um, in all of those different facets. And so one of the things that we worked based on that educator well-being listening post was pushing for, at the bargaining table, a conditions for learning task force to work with the district safety team to develop what are some of the levers that need to be put in place to be able to support our students and our staff and are starting to work on um, actually getting some of those things implemented throughout this year and continuing our collaboration. And now the union has a seat on the district's um, safety team to continue to help keep those things accountable and continue to help push to make sure that those things continue to move forward. Back to those listening posts, what did you learn from teachers about what might, what could change to help keep them in the profession? Yeah, I think one of the things that we talked about, what I mean, from that financial end is um, additional money to, in their paychecks and, and additional ways to be able to help support them in those roles. And with limited SSA, um, the state supplemental aid, um, but it's not keeping up with inflation, like President uh, Mike Bronick mentioned from ISCA. Um, we had to figure out some creative ways to work with the district to handle that issue. And so one of those ways was trying to figure out um, how to keep people in Des Moines public schools um, with a weak amount of money that we could put on salary. Um, state law, after the collective bargaining law changes, um, doesn't allow for more than a um, allow us to go to arbitration to try to get more than three a 3% increase in base wage. And so when we're stuck at negotiating from a place of weakness um, in the amount that we're allowed to go and try to get from the table, we have to come up with other creative ways to be able to do those things. And so one of the ways that we did that in Des Moines was that we leveraged the ESSER funds from the federal government to give an incentive to every single employee. So classroom teachers, bus drivers, custodians, paraprofessionals, um, administrators, and try to keep them in Des Moines to um, another year. And so we were able to um, offer every single returning employee a $1,250 retention bonus that was just recently paid out um, to be able to try to keep as many people in Des Moines Public Schools as possible from last year. How did it work? Um, Very well. I think very few people chose to not take the incentive. Um, I believe that... um, 
people would rather have that money in their base wage because that would be something that's going to continue into future years. But um, under a contract where we weren't able to get very much money on the base and not much money um, guaranteed year over year, it helped um, make up a little bit for that. So, I mean, I heard I heard Mike say it, and I've heard many teachers say it. I mean, money is a big part of this equation. The fact that teachers do a difficult and important job and don't make very much money doing it. Underpaying teachers seems to be at the heart of this crisis and, and has been a problem for a very long time. Yeah, I think over the last decade with um, what was allowable growth and now is state supplemental aid not keeping up with inflation and not keeping up with the increased costs that happen within schools, which includes some of the benefits that we were talking about, but also just heating and cooling schools and being able to provide the gas and the transportation and all of the different things um, make it very difficult for there to be much left of the pie um, to be able to be considered for um, employee wages. And so um, that is definitely one big piece of the pie. So you are a teacher. You're planning to go back to teaching after uh, your time uh, with the Des Moines Education Association. Yeah. And so, yeah, my position is uh, my the union reimburses the district my salary and benefits in order to release me. And when this position would end, I have a guaranteed position back in the school district, not necessarily the job I had, but a position that I'm qualified to teach. What do we need to do to convince students getting educated today, that they should become teachers. It doesn't sound great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're actually working on in Des Moines as well. And so we have a Dream to Teach program where we're working within, within each of our middle schools and high schools trying to encourage people to come into the profession. I think it's really and it's critical that we're looking at trying to um, find people within our community that look like our community um, to be able to then come into the teaching field to make our teaching profession more diverse as well. And so we're working on trying to do those things while trying to improve the working conditions. So that's one of the things that the union can do on the inside is working on making sure that educators have a voice at the table when decisions are being made around curriculum, as as decisions are being made around safety plans and expectations um, that We are working on trying to improve the calendar, improve the um, planning time, and to protect that time so that teachers can get more of their work done during the school day. Um, But externally, the big thing that needs to happen is we need to change the narrative around um, that the the profession of education and the profession of our – and just public schools in general are failing or doing something wrong, that we need to be able to come around our public schools and support them, support our educators, support our students so that they can see some brightness at the end of that tunnel and go, you know what, I want to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you. Josh Brown is the president of the Des Moines Education Association. And with me now is Barb Schwaman, superintendent of Riceville Community School District and Osage Community Schools, a superintendent who covers two districts. Hello, Barb. Good morning, Charity. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thank you for being here. And uh, tell me a little bit, uh, you're a shared superintendent for two districts. That sounds incredibly challenging. What else do the districts share? 
Um, our districts do share a lot of positions due to our um, economics um, and where we're at with the state with our crisis in Iowa. But superintendent sharing, we share transportation director, we share building and grounds director, we've shared a curriculum director, we share social workers across adult districts, and we share some teachers. So um, just between these two districts, we're sharing that, but other districts, um, Osage will share other things with. So again, it's a time where superintendents have to be very creative with their administrative staff and trying to do what's best for our kids by um, sharing the positions that maybe affect kids the least. And I would hope that superintendents and transportations, we all have an impact on kids, but it's indirect. Um, we don't wanna be moving kids around. So we now we're starting to move some teachers when we have a shortage of places. So we can do that or we can use technology in creative ways. But again, we are doing everything out here in rural Iowa to be as creative as possible with the, the funding shortage that we have. What are some of the positions that you're having the hardest time filling? Um, definitely, we're seeing special education, um, the higher level science. Um, you're seeing paraeducators. It's the support staff where we're seeing it here in rural Iowa. Mike talked about it best. You know, a lot of schools, we were blessed to be able to fill all of our teaching positions. And um, But again, it's our support staff where we're starting to see that crunch. And we've had to really work hard to raise our wages and uh, benefits there just to be competitive with the local um, gas stations or the local fast food restaurants and things like that. Because again, our staff that's working with some of the most challenging kids and challenging students and situations um, really needs to be compensated better for that. So you talk about trying to make it as easy on the kids as possible. We do know some districts are having to move kids from place to place to get some of the the they are yeah, yes they are the programs that that they need and that they want to be able to offer their children. That's hard on teachers though when they have to move from district to district as well. I mean you're in a, a rural area and these drives are not short. Absolutely. It's hard on the teachers. It's hard on all the people. It's hard on the superintendents and it's hard on principals or counselors, anyone who's being shared because you are now taking on the workload of more than one district. Um, you know, these positions, again, um, those teachers we know. And so we try to look at how can we balance things out for them and, and looking at what other things we can we do. Sometimes there's some intensive pay that goes with that as well, you know, and how can we help them with some of that overload pay. So we try to make it so that it's something that is doable and that the staff that staff wants to do and that they can do. So we have to manipulate schedules where they're going to those other districts first thing in the morning or last thing during the day. So it does tax the whole system, as others here on the show have said today. What are you doing to try to retain the teachers that you do have? Um, we're definitely looking at our pay schedule. We're looking at all of our supplemental wages. We're also seeing a shortage of coaches at this point, just like we're seeing referee shortages in all of our extracurricular areas for our students. Um, so again, we're looking at pay, we're looking at benefits, but we're looking at some of the other non-tangibles and that whole, what does the calendar look like? We knew and learned a lot through the pandemic. And so um, we had piloted and tried some four-day weeks where students stayed at home one of the weeks with some online learning. And we were able to do those things in the pandemic. And we did that on Wednesdays. And we saw such great results because we need a more balanced calendar system. I think there's some big systemic changes that really could help us. Um, and whether that's a four-day week or whether it's a, a balanced year-round calendar, we've got to look at changing the whole system. And that even comes from our funding stream. Um, as a school superintendent, we need more SSA. It's that um, sustainable growth. Us, our districts that are out here on the rural um, fringes and that butt up against other states, and my districts butt up against the Minnesota schools. And again, what they get per pupil, per student, per school is much different. What their teachers get paid is much different. And so, Again, 
Um, it's a total system that we need to look at and we need to work on this because Iowa has always prided itself. Back in the 80s and 90s, our teachers were paid and some of the most respected things. In fact, our quarter has, you know, the foundation is education. If we do not get this system fixed and changed around a little bit, we need we will have a crisis of even greater depth as, as these generation, this next generation comes in. You sound like you're really, really concerned about the future. I am concerned about the future because I'm a rural Iowan. I'm a farm kid myself. I grew up in a great rural Iowa school in Northeast Iowa. And again, I want our kids to have those same opportunities. We want this next generation. We want rural and urban Iowa to be a place where people want to be and where they get a quality education. And by um, looking at vouchers and things like that, we're not actually helping our greater system where a majority of the kids go. So again, we really need to work hard this election season. We really need to promote our stories. Everyone here today has told you that we have wonderful things. Our schools and our teachers and our entire staff is doing amazing things with less every year. And so again, we need to keep sharing all of the positives that are going on and drown out the negativity. Do you feel optimistic about the future? I am optimistic about the future. You have to be. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to school every day. And so we work really hard and we, we try to take steps every day um, for our staff and for our students to, to continue to make things better. And we, we do a lot of these listening posts and trying to hear what do they think is going to help make things better. At the same time, we also know things do have to change. We know that we're in a different society and we know that we're in a different um, time with our economics in our state. So again, we need to work together. That's the one thing I would say is if we could just work together, um, not legislatures versus educators and educators versus their communities. Um, we need to work together to solve these problems. Barb, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us today. Barb Schwaman is superintendent of Riceville Community School District and Osage Community Schools. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. 